Well, um, here's something you may not know, and it also may be something that you don't even care about knowing, but hey, uh, here it goes anyway. Here on planet Earth, your planet, my planet, the planet we all share some space on, there are over 8.7 million different species of animals here on this planet. And, and I know you didn't know that. You hadn't thought about that this week. So congratulations to you. You're thinking about it now. But among those 8.7 million species, there's, there's one of those species, it's called Homo sapiens. Then that's you and that's me and that's us. And, and interestingly enough, there are some things that we humans share in common with all those other 8.7 million you know, species of animals on the planet. And that's pretty, that's pretty cool to think about and, and pretty profound to think about that we share some things in common with every living thing on the planet. But there is one thing, there is one thing that sets human beings apart from all other living things and all other species on this planet. And, and that's an incredible thing. And we call it human consciousness. Uh, human consciousness is one of the most profound and one of the most mysterious things uh, about us humans. And as far as science is concerned, it's an unexplained phenomenon. Science cannot explain how human consciousness arose within our species. But Christians, Christians believe that it's part of the thumbprint of God on us. Uh, we believe that it's part of us bearing his image because as the psalmist said, we are both fearfully and wonderfully made. And that's something really intense to think about that, that we, have this, we have this ability that no other living thing, no other animal on the planet has, and it's called consciousness. Now, human consciousness, a discussion about it's just not about the human brain, though the, the two are somewhat related. It's really a conversation about the human mind. Uh, some would call it the soul. Uh, some would call it the human spirit. But, but human consciousness is what makes you, you. It's what makes me, me. It's what makes us different from one another. Uh, your ability to have consciousness, uh, it's what colors our human existence um, with subjective experiences rather than just objective ones. Because if we didn't have a human consciousness, we would all experience the same thing the same way. But because we have individual consciences and even you know, we have these individual souls or these individual minds that we can, we can experience the same thing but in various degrees uh, differently from one another. And, and so, you know, human consciousness is pretty profound, it's pretty mysterious. It's what allows you to be aware of yourself. You, you are aware of yourself and you are aware of the world in which you exist. And you are, you are aware of how those two things are related to each other. And, and that's phenomenal because you're the only species on the planet that can do that. Uh, human consciousness uh, is what allows us to contemplate abstraction just not concrete things. It's what allows us to contemplate things like value, like this has value more so than this. This has no value. So we are able to contemplate value, existence in both time and space. We're able to contemplate things like purpose and emotions and beauty. Uh, human consciousness is what allows us to imagine, to project scenarios in, in our minds and in our brains and to create uh, something from, from basically nothing. But beyond all of that, the reason I tell you all that is because the next time you're at a dinner party, you can say, you know what I've been thinking? And then you say, what have you been thinking about? I've been thinking about human consciousness. And, and then you can just have something to talk about over dinner. And, and really at the end of the day, that's why you come to the creek. We give you the real goods. We just don't give you the Bible. We give you everything else to go along with it. But human consciousness, human consciousness is what is responsible for the human ability to ponder the future. 
Human consciousness is why you have the ability to ponder or contemplate the future. Uh, we're the only species that can really do that. Only humans have the capacity to muse upon or reflect on the future. Uh, human consciousness allows us to exercise foresight, uh, to anticipate the future, uh, what may happen, what may not happen, to, to predict what, what could happen or what probably we think might happen, to envision future consequences, to present choices or events. So we have this ability to ponder the future, but for humans, we, we really sometimes go beyond just the ability to ponder the future. We actually, a lot of us, we develop a fascination with the future. And since the earliest of times, people like us, we've, we've wanted to know the future. And the reasons why we would wanna know the future, they're obvious. So people would turn you know, to wherever they thought they could turn to learn the future, to magic, to seers, to religion, uh, to anywhere else where they could possibly unravel the mystery of the future, what the future would look like, what the future would hold. And, and the reason, like I said, is obvious. We wanna gain some type of advantage. We think that by knowing the future, it, it puts us in, in a position where we have advantage over someone who doesn't. So we're able to better plan for it, to plan accordingly to it, uh, to live more strategically today in light of it. And, and we love the idea of the future because we love the idea that if I know the future, somehow I can secure the good and I can avoid the bad. If I know the future, I can secure the good and I can avoid the bad. But, but the fact of the matter is, no matter what anybody else may tell you, as finite creatures, we just can't know the future. We just can't know the future. Sure, we can forecast and sure we can anticipate and sure we can predict and we can run models and we can look at the past and try to figure out what may repeat itself in the future. But at the end of the day, I can't possibly know what you're gonna choose to do or not do. You can't possibly know what I will choose to do or not do. And we cannot possibly know what the results of those choices will be. We can't know about the future of our health, no matter how much we exercise. We can't predict accidents, which is why they call them accidents. Uh, we cannot at all understand, you know, what people may choose to behave in that direction or that direction. We can't pick, you know, we can't predict the behavior of nations or markets or economies to any degree of absolute certainty. Unforeseen things happen all the time. And there's a reason why they call them unforeseen. No one saw them coming. So when it comes to the future, and this is why I wanna set this groundwork because it's so important to why I wanted to do this series to begin with. When we look to the future and when we ponder or get fascinated with the idea of what the future may hold, there's only two ways to look at the future with dread or with hope, with dread or with hope. That, that's, that's basically about it. For some, maybe some of you, but for some in our world, when they contemplate the future, uh, there's a sense of dread that comes along with it. Uh, they begin to imagine the worst case scenario. And not only do they think about what possibly could be the worst case scenario, because there, there are values attached to that type of thinking, but for some people, they think about the worst case scenario for so long and they fixate it so much, they begin to expect the worst case scenario. Uh, the worst case scenario begins to seem inevitable and it begins to seem unavoidable. And so they begin to look at the future with dread. And so they, they create these endless lists of possibilities in their mind that becomes like an endless list of probabilities. And, and that just becomes paralyzing. So they live every day in the present with this sense of dread as, oh no, what, what's gonna happen next? Or you know, what's around the corner and next month and next year or 10 years from now or 20 years from now? And so they sit around and they worry about you know, the future of their health. 
Uh, they can't possibly know the future of their health, but they, they worry about the future of their health and they expect the absolute worst case scenario to happen. What could happen, what might happen. Uh, some people, they fret about, you know, the future of the market. You know, what about my 401? What about my 403? What about my money market? What about this and what about that? And, you know, what's that gonna mean when I turn 65 or 68 or 70 or 72 or 75 or whatever it's gonna be by the time I get there? You know, what's it gonna mean? There's rumors and there's wars and there's the threat to future democracy, some people are saying on the nightly cable news. And what about those outcomes to the elections? And it's just like this sense of dread. It's like, oh no. Oh no, the Christians are different. Christians are supposed to be different. Christians believe that the future is a mystery that's known only to God. That the future is a mystery known only to God. Matter of fact, Isaiah the prophet quoted God and God said this, he said, I make known the end from the beginning. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say, my purpose, my purposes will stand and I will do what I please. God says, when it comes to the future and it, when it comes to my plans for the future, says the Lord, my plans can't be and won't be thwarted. They can't be and they won't be thwarted. Now, how you choose to process that and, and think about that and turn that into your perspective about the future is all on you. But God says, hey, as far as the future is concerned, my plans for the future, they cannot be thwarted. They are what they are. And that's really good news in light of what another prophet said. Jeremiah, he, he recorded this and he recorded what God was saying. And God said, for I know the plans I have for you. So God says, hey, I've known the end from the beginning and my plans can't be thwarted. And there's nothing you can do to stand in the way of my plans and purposes. So let me tell you, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you. What? I, I, I like that and not to harm you. Whew, that takes the load off. Plans to give you hope and a future. And again, now we, now we know a little more about God's plans for the future and those plans, these plans cannot be, will not be thwarted. So that's the reason just among many why when believers ponder the future, we should do so with hope. I don't know the specifics of the future. I don't know the specifics of your future. I can, I can try to engage with the future on my finite level and anticipate and predict and forecast, and we should do all of those things. I'll try to plan and adjust and, and do all of those things that we should do in the present in light of the future. But when it comes to the details of the future, we just can't know the details. But here's what we can know, and I'm not saying this in some trite, cliche kind of way. Whatever the future holds, it's gonna be okay. It's gonna be okay for you and it's gonna be okay for me. Matter of fact, it's gonna be better than okay. It's gonna be good. And it's gonna be good no matter the bad that may lie ahead. Now don't miss that part. It's gonna be better than okay, it's gonna be good. And it's gonna be good for you and it's gonna be good for me, the future. It's gonna be good for you, it's gonna be good for me. No matter the bad that may lie ahead. And I, if nobody else in, in this world will be honest with you about this thing, I wanna be honest with you about this thing. There is bad waiting for you in the future. There is bad waiting for me in the future. Now that's not pessimism, that's just life. That's not being negative, that's not being depressing. That's just acknowledging what we all should be mature enough to know and acknowledge. So the scripture says that as believers, it's all gonna be good no matter the bad that may lie ahead in the future. And so that begins to change my perspective. When I really believe that God is good, his purposes are good and all his plans for you for me are good. 
Matter of fact, let's all just say that together. And instead of saying for you, let's all just say for me. You ready? Everywhere, Somerset, Williamsburg, Millsboro, on three. One, two, three. God is good. His purposes are good. And all his plans for me are good. And doesn't, doesn't that just sit well? Doesn't that just sound good? That God is good, his purposes are good, his plans for me are good. And if that's true, none of you and none of us, and not me, none of us should think of dread or fear when we think about the future. And the future may, may largely be unknown, but our heavenly father has invited us to know him because he knows that when we get to know him, we'll be confident of his goodness. And when we're confident that the God who is all powerful and all knowing is also all good, it changes the way that we see the future. His plans cannot be thwarted. His purposes cannot be withstood. And his plans for you, his plans for me, they are good because he is good. And then we begin to, we begin to live today with a little bit different posture and a little bit different perspective because now we're feeling like, okay, I'm not afraid of the future. I'm not dreading it. I can't predict it. There's some unknown, there's some uncertainty, but you know what? I don't have to be in fear of the uncertain or the the unknown because I know what I can know and what I can know is God and he's all powerful and he's all knowing and he's all good. Amen. So I, I begin to see it differently. I begin to think about it differently. Now, now there, there's, there's a lot of this that overlaps with the story of Jesus uh, because when you think about where we are a couple weeks after Easter, Jesus, you know, he, he was raised from the dead, but before he raised from the dead, we looked at a passage last week in Matthew 24 where he told his disciples about what to expect in the future, that there would be wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes and, and deep places and various places. And, and he goes through all of these, just it sounds like worst case scenario stuff, but Jesus said, hey, these things must happen. These things must happen. And then as he's talking about the future, in light of everything that we just got through talking about, no wonder Jesus said, see to it that you're not alarmed. There's gonna be stuff that happens, but, but don't be alarmed. Don't be fretful about it. Don't be fearful about it. That's not why I'm telling you about it because God's all knowing and he's all powerful and he's all good and his plans for you are good and they can't be thwarted. So you don't have anything to fret and you don't have anything to fear. Now, Jesus said this and a few days later, he's arrested and he's crucified and he's, his body's taken down from the cross and, and he's buried. Now, when that happened on Friday afternoon, when Jesus died at three o'clock on Friday afternoon, his disciples were struck with fret. His disciples were struck with fear. His disciples were struck with dread. About what? About the future, about their uncertain future. The future they thought seemed to be the future that wasn't gonna happen anymore. So Jesus is dead and now they're struck with dread and fear as they think about their own future. They were fearful. They were dreading that they were the next to what? Suffer and die. They were afraid that they were gonna suffer and die, that they would be the next to suffer and die, just like Jesus. And so I want, you to, I want us to think about this for a moment. And isn't that, in the most honest assessment of things, isn't that the underpinning of all of our fear, angst and dread? Isn't that the underpinning, this, this fear, this, this worry about suffering and death? It's just human, it's part of our human consciousness. It's, it's fight or flight, it's how God made us. We're, we're not to feel this sense of affinity about suffering and dying. 
No, we're not because death bothers us. So we stay away from it. And, and so we are able to practice safety and good choices. And we don't go play in the middle of 75 with our families and our children. And, and we do smart things all because of a good, healthy, you know, sense of fears, not, you know, faith or death is not good. Death is not good. Life is good. Life is good. Life, death, not good. And, and it's so, you know, it's, you teach your kids that in, in a lot of unconscious ways. But it's the, it's the potential of suffering and death that's terrifying for humans. It always has been. And on a more fundamental level, on a more fundamental level, it's, it's really not even the fear of suffering and death that freaks us out. It's the fear of coming to an end. It's the fear of coming to my end. It's the fear of coming to the end of life, the end of time, the end of the world. That, that's the fundamental part to which Jesus is speaking to and says, don't be alarmed about that. Now, once upon a time, this was a big part of my life. I struggled with this. I had a lot of mental, mental health things going on. I was, I was a hypochondriac on steroids and crack and all the stimulants. I mean, just hyperactive, hypochondriac. I, I just, it, it robbed me of so much life for so many years. And, and it's been quite a few years. And I'm not going to tell you that I'm completely over it because those who know me close enough and love me most, they, they still know the magic that is me. And it still, it still haunts me a little bit. And, and, but I, I, I live with it better. And once upon a time, it was almost debilitating. And, you know, I, I think I've told you before, but I mean, a few years ago, when I first came to the church, I, I went to the gym one morning and I came back and I got in the shower and, you know, I, uh, this never made sense of why you get back out of the shower to go pee. So, you know, guys know this. I mean, you just don't, you don't, that, if you were taught to do that, God bless you. But I, I, I don't know. So you, you, you just, there's a drain right there and there's all this water. And it's like, obviously this was what someone was thinking about. And, 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 and I'm sorry to load you up with that image, but uh, that's okay. Uh, sanctify your mind. Okay. Sanctify your mind. Um, so I, I, I did that and there was, it was just like, just straight blood. I, I knew that moment I was dying. I knew that moment, stage four, metastasized. I, I, I did have that pain in my head, it's already in my brain. Uh, I, I, did, I did have a pain in my jaw, oh my God, it's in my neck. It's, I mean, it's everywhere, my legs cramping, it's in the muscles of my, I was just like, oh my God, I was spiraling out of control. And uh, you know, so I, I started going to the doctor and they were running all these tests. And then I go over to my good friend, Dr. Shoptaw, some of y'all remember him, he's a cardiothoracic surgeon. And, and I'm at dinner and I just couldn't eat, I just couldn't eat. I was so freaking, I was, freaking out about, oh my God, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And, and, and somebody finally picked up on it and said, what's wrong with you? You're not anything like you normally are. And I was like, yeah. And, and Allison spoke up. So he's afraid he's dying. You know, he's got in his mind. He's got cancer. <laughs> Always count on a good wingman. <laughs> could have been indigestion, could have been the onset of flu, could have been anything. He thinks he's got cancer. What'd you do? I went to the bath, I went to the shower, I peed, it was blood and Shoptaw looks at me and says, you know, I had a friend two years older and you had the same symptoms. He was dead in seven months. <laughs> and I was thinking, is your middle name Bill Daz? You know, from the story of Job, are you like a Job's company? Don't tell, listen, if you don't remember, don't tell people things like that. It's just goofy. And you know, or somebody in my family, you know, years ago, they got diagnosed with a skin cancer. And so ever since then, I've never told this publicly, 
the people who know me best know this, but every Monday's Mole Monday. So I, I check moles every Monday. I, I know exactly how big they're supposed to be and where they are. I know, I'm crazy. You knew this already though, but you hired me. And it's gonna be hard to get rid of me. Uh, so just gonna have to deal with it and practice some grace. But, but that's the way it can be. And for you, it may be about money. For you, it may be about relationships. For, for you, it may be about emotional security. It may be about any number of things, but, but it's gotten to the place where, where you just, it's hard for you to even think about what's next without it bringing on some sense of fear or fright or dread. Well, that's how the disciples were on Friday afternoon, Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, Saturday night. It was all dread, all fear, all fright. And it all changed on Sunday with the resurrection of Jesus. Now, Luke, he gives us the abridged version and he says this, Luke says, after his suffering and resurrections implied there, he presented, Jesus presented himself to them, to those disciples that were looking to the future with dread, many convincing proofs, many convincing proofs. How convinced were they? Were they were convinced enough to die for all of this later on? They were convinced that he was alive. He appeared to them for over a period of 40 days and he spoke about the kingdom of God. And then he gave them marching orders. He said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after this, Luke says, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. And they're like, where'd he go, where'd he go? And they were looking intently into the sky as he was going. When suddenly two men dressed in white stood before them and said, men of Galilee, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Now I told you on Easter what somebody says, that's part of the story. What somebody does is the rest of the story. And so well, what did those disciples do? They were so convinced they did what Jesus said. And they started in Jerusalem and they went to Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the known earth over the next few generations. And they emerged from those weeks with Jesus. Now think of this, they emerged from those weeks with Jesus after being so feel, full of dread for the future, they emerged from those weeks with Jesus with unbreakable, unbreakable faith, an unshakable hope, unbreakable faith, unshakable hope. So much so they were willing, they were willing to be dragged before magistrates and governors and councils and kings, and they were beaten and crucified and beheaded and fed to lions, and you know the story. That's how convinced they were. That's how they lived the present in light of an uncertain future. It was like the dread was gone and there was only hope there. Uh, there was a first century doctor who lived around the turn of the first century and into the second century who, who watched Christians get martyred for their faith. And in, at that time in the Roman empire, it was against the law to do autopsies. So he, he would watch Christians kind of get, you know, shredded in these, in these martyrdom events. And, and he was allowed to go look and, and to try to study, you know, the human anatomy from, from whatever perspective he could have. And this is what he wrote about Christians. This is what he observed in how Christians lived. He said, they had a fearlessness of death. He says, for fearlessness of death in the hereafter, it's something we witness in them every day. It's like, they're not afraid of like what the future has. It's like they're not afraid of whatever may come their way. Whether it's suffering or death or their own personal end, it's, they have a fearlessness of the future. 
And we have to ask, well, why? Because they were convinced that Jesus was alive and that Jesus was coming back. And when you're convinced that Jesus who died is now alive and coming back, it changes some things. It changes the way you think about things and the way that you see things. An empty tomb had left them full of hope for the future. And then you read throughout the whole New Testament and it's just, it's just this kind of encouragement for you and for me and for us to have this very same perspective about the future. Not to be people who are freaking out about the future or stressing about the future or having to take medication about the future when we think about it. That we're encouraged to see the future the same way the first Christians saw it with a fearlessness, a fearlessness of suffering, a fearlessness of death, a fearlessness of what may come our way because we are convinced that Jesus died and was buried and was raised from the dead and is coming back one day. That we're convinced that no matter what will happen, whatever that is, and I don't know, I can't tell you what will happen and how it all will happen. But no matter how it plays out, we're not afraid. We're not fretful of it. We can't gain some type of advantage and escape What's inevitable, you just, you just can't. And even if the future is all the things that we don't wanna think about, the New Testament says, it's all good. Because the resurrection of Jesus is the foundation beneath our faith and the fuel behind our hope. It's the, it's the foundation beneath your faith. It's what your faith rests upon, that Jesus died and was raised from the dead. And it's also the fuel behind your hope. And this, this is the New Testament. And this is so many of Peter's words and so many of Paul's words. Uh, Paul writes one particular letter and this is where I end it. Paul writes one particular letter and he's in the same vein, the same line of thought, dealing with human beings who have a human consciousness so much so that they can ponder the future so much so that they know that certain things are inescapable and inevitable. And, and talking to those humans, he, he, he talks about the resurrection of Jesus and how it's the most important thing. It is the most important thing to believe. Forget about dinosaurs, forget about creation, forget about all the other things. The most important thing to believe is that Jesus died for our sins, was buried, was raised from the dead, according to the scripture. That's what he says. You get that right, you can wrestle with the rest, but that is the most important thing. Because without the resurrection, faith is youth, useless, it's worthless. Without, without the resurrection, according to Paul's theology, there's no forgiveness of sin. Uh, according to Paul's theology, without the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, there's no such thing as life after death. That, that this life is all there is. And so he was writing to a group of Christians and some of us, we live this way. Some of you are like me and you live this way. They were living as though the best life was now. That their best option for life was now. That their best options for living it to the full was now. And when you think that your only opportunity to really live is now, Sooner or later, despair and dread and doubt creaks its way in, you get distracted, you get on a detour, and you end up in some dangerous places. When you think that this is all there is, you, you just make some choices that just, we make some choices that are just not wise, they're just not good, they're just not right. When we think that this life is all there is. So he, he gives them some words to try to give them a theological framework of how to think about the future and how to think about 
the future of the world and how to think about their future. And this is, this is where we kind of wrap it up and end it. This is, he, he says, let me, let me teach you some things. He says, for since death came through a man, that's Adam, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So he takes them back in the past all the way to the Garden of Eden. When Adam sinned, it opened the door for death to come into the world because sin came into the world. And wherever there's sin, there's death. A lot of people think that death is our greatest problem. Death is not our greatest problem. Sin is our greatest problem. There would be no death in the world unless there was sin in the world. And because there's sin in the world, there's death in the world. And the only way to rectify our death problem is to rectify the sin problem. So he, he goes back and he spotlights Jesus. And he said, okay, let me, let me tell you what this means. If Jesus is raised from the dead, the resurrection of Jesus, now listen to me, don't, don't. The resurrection of Jesus ensures guarantees, promises a future resurrection from the dead for every believer and follower of Jesus. That's what he's saying. So if Jesus is raised from the dead, it is a guarantee that one day, even if you die, you will be resurrected from the dead like Jesus. So, well, that's pretty good news. And that, that changes a little bit about how I think about the future. And so the question is, well, when does this happen? When do people that die get raised from the dead, their bodies like Jesus, physically, literally? When do they get up from the grave? Well, he says it happens when Jesus comes back. This same Jesus you saw taken up will come again. No wonder Jesus said, don't be alarmed. What's the worst that can happen? You die, I got you covered. It's gonna be okay. Still hard for some of you to laugh at such a thing. It's like. But what if, what, does it matter? You're dead. What if it's not true? You're still dead. So Paul goes on and says, when Jesus comes back, then the end, and this is what we've been talking about, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God. The father to the kingdom, he hands over the kingdom of God to the father after he has destroyed all dominion, all authority, all power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet and he will, and the last enemy to be destroyed is what? Death. I hate death. You know why? It devastates. It breaks people's hearts. It shatters dreams, brings relationships to an end. It disrupts families. It causes grief. It causes heartache. Death takes and it 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 takes. And our human consciousness knows something and it works against us. We know it's inevitable. We know it's unavoidable. We're aware of this. We're aware of our existence in time and space. It's finite, it's not forever. So we're aware, death is out there somewhere. It's inevitable, it's unavoidable. So we live as human beings different than every other life form on the planet. We live every day in the face of potential death. Now, we don't think about it all the time, but that's how we live. And Paul, he, he writes to us because he knows we're human. And he says, listen, one day death itself will be dealt a death blow. There will be a future death to death. Every enemy will be destroyed and the last enemy to be destroyed will be death. And so Paul keeps on arguing this idea, Jesus is raised from the dead. It ensures a future resurrection from the dead for all of those who follow Jesus. And he argues that if there's not a future death of death, if there's not a future resurrection from the dead for believers, he says, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? He says, I'm facing death every day. 
I thought, even if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, then hey, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. We should just do whatever we wanna do. We should just live ever how we wanna live because it doesn't matter. If there's no death to death, if there's no life after death, if there's no resurrection for you or for me or for us or for anyone, then just live your life. Don't, why are you wasting your time being here today? Why waste your time doing the right thing? Why waste your time doing the good thing? Why waste your time with obedience or with generosity or any other? If those things aren't true, go just do what you wanna do because hey, eat, drink. Tomorrow we're dead. This is all we got. This is our one shot at life. So live it up. Try it all, soak it in. Don't leave any stone unturned. Paul says, if Jesus is a raise, I'm wasting my time. Why am I out here trying to share the good news with people? If Jesus isn't raised from the dead, this is just, let's all pack up, go home and do something different. And so he unpacks this and he says, okay, let me just tell you what's gonna happen. You wonder what, what's gonna happen? He says, let me tell you what's gonna happen. Listen, I'm gonna tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That is a euphemism for death. We, we won't all die because when Jesus comes back, there will be some people alive when Jesus comes back. So, hey, hope for that ticket. And I don't know what you gotta do to get that one, but that's kind of the one I'd like to go. I'd kind of like to go alive and remaining. That's kind of how I wanna be. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed. So regardless of whether you're alive or dead, when Jesus comes back, either way, you're gonna be resurrected and you're gonna be changed. Trevor, let's talk about Russia and the nukes. I don't know anything about the Russians and the nukes. Let's talk about the Antichrist and the seven years and the tribulation. Let's talk about how he's gonna break the peace covenant and when the rapture and if there's a rapture and when does the kingdom come and what happens in the kingdom and who are those people from Gog and Magog and who's rebelling at the end of the foul? I don't have a flipping clue. Can I just be honest with you? I don't know, I'm still figuring it out. Anybody who says they've got it all figured out, they are not being intellectually honest because not everybody has an angle on what's gonna happen. There are big holes in every theory. The only thing we can know, he's coming back. In a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed like a thief in the night, to borrow the words of Jesus. In a nanosecond, the trumpet's gonna sound, the voice of the archangel, it's gonna be heard, and the Lord himself is gonna descend from heaven. And in that moment, all of those who followed Christ and are dead, their bodies are gonna be raised to life. Isn't that gonna be amazing? Those who have been buried or cremated or lost at sea or their bodies have never been found, it didn't matter how they died or what happened to their body after death. They are gonna hear the call of God and every atom and quark is gonna begin to reassemble every protein and neutron and carbon particle and hydrogen and phosphorus. And it's all gonna come back together and form a new body. Like Ezekiel said, I saw a big valley of dry bones and then it heard the word of God. And when the word of God went out, those bones started to rattle. They started attaching themselves one to another in ligaments and tendons and muscle and skin until it stood up. As an army, he said, that's the way it's gonna be. It's gonna be amazing for the perishable. And I just wanna say, that was far better than you acted like it was just then, but that's okay. (laughs) Whatever, (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) What am I up here doing? (laughs) For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. In other words, we're gonna all receive bodies at that time that will never die. Amen. 
Never die. Wow. One day I'm going to have a body that cannot and will not die. That's my ultimate destiny. There's no dread and fear in that. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with the immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And he quotes the Old Testament. Where is, oh death, where is your victory? Where is, oh death, your sting? I'll tell you, Jesus took it away. On resurrection morning, he took the sting away from sin. And when death at three o'clock on the afternoon on Friday, when Jesus hung on the cross, when death put its chilly, bony fingers on Jesus and put a death hold on him and held it through Friday night and Saturday morning and Saturday afternoon and Saturday night on Sunday morning. We don't know what all went down, but here's what we do know happened. Jesus broke that death hold of death itself and Jesus came out with the keys of death, hell, and the grave. And it was a monumental, cosmic shifting event. And Paul's point is this, Jesus has not only defeated death, one day he will destroy death. Death will be defeated, it is defeated, but one day it will end up being destroyed. And in doing so, oh, this is even when it gets better. Jesus has not only defeated death, one day he will destroy death, and in doing so, all of death's victories will be undone. What looked like a victory for death will be reversed. Probably the closest person that I've ever had die was my grandfather just a few months ago. And when, when we left the, the, the graveyard that morning, it was like, this is what death feels like. This is what death is like. But Paul says one day, not only will death be destroyed, but all of death's victories will be undone. All the heartbreak and the grief and the loss and the sorrow and the pain, it's gonna be undone. It's gonna be unraveled. It's just not enough to say, hey, there's a tornado that destroyed that, that town and it'll never destroy that town again. It's far better than that. It's saying, hey, a tornado destroyed that town, but a tornado will never destroy that town again, but this town shall be rebuilt. And when this town is going to be rebuilt, it's gonna be rebuilt better than it's ever been before. That's what he's saying. Death is gonna be destroyed and it's victories overturned. And Paul says, therefore, therefore, my brothers and sisters, because of this, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor is not in vain. In the meantime, live your life. Live it to the full, just as Jesus intended. But be immovable. Live life with unbreakable faith and unshakable hope. Be anchored to the resurrection. And don't be moved. Don't be moved by sin, don't be moved by sorrow, don't be moved by fear, by guilt, by shame, by suffering, by disappointment, by critics. Don't be moved. Give yourself fully to the Lord, fully. Don't be afraid of the cost. Don't be afraid of what the consequences will be if you decide to follow Jesus and not you and not someone else. Live on purpose because you have a purpose. You're a part of the church, so get busy playing your part. You have a mission, so hey, get on mission. You have influence, leverage it. 
Don't live your life for small things. Don't live your life in pursuit of the least important things or inferior things while you neglect and forsake and ignore the most important thing. Don't give the best of you to someone else or something else. Give the best of you to the kingdom, to the king. And you can know this. You can know this, that it won't be in vain. That it matters. Every act of sacrifice, it matters. Every act of generosity, it matters. Every act of mercy or grace or love, every gesture of forgiveness to someone who's hurt you or done you wrong, it matters. When you say no to sin, when you say no to temptation, it's not in vain. It matters. It matters, it matters, it matters when you do the right thing. It matters when you obey. It matters, it matters, it's not in vain. So don't grow weary in your well-doing. The tomb is empty. Your hope is full, live life to the full. Be fearless of death. Be fearless of death. Be hopeful of the future. Be faithful in the present. And the world will be better for it. And if you live with hope, you'll navigate through pain much better than you would with dread. When you live with hope, you'll navigate through suffering much better than you will without it. You'll navigate through the most difficult things of life without bitterness, without cynicism, without resentfulness. Paul says, let me remind you, death has not It has been defeated, one day it will be destroyed. In the meantime, I know, I know it's easy to feel like death has won. When I walked away in November from the graveside, it was so tempting to believe that death had won. When Adam left the garden and eventually died, it seemed as though death had won. When Cain, his son, killed his other son, Abel, it seemed that death had won. Abraham, that great father of faith who followed God in directions of the unknown and the uncertain, when Abraham finally took his last breath, it felt like death had won. When Joseph, who had been betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery and falsely imprisoned, who finally, out of his faithfulness, was promoted to second in command in Egypt, But at the end of the day, they carried his bones in a coffin out of Egypt back to his homeland. And in that moment, it seemed like death had won. When Moses had led the nation of Israel out of Egypt through the wilderness for 40 years, but God said, you can't see the promised land. So he climbed up on top of the mountain and he looked over and he breathed his last and it seemed as though death had won. Joseph led them, Joshua led them across the Jordan River. They conquested the land and then he settled. But at the end of his years, he died, and it seemed as though death had won. And Samuel, that great prophet, when he died, it seemed as though death had won. When David, the man after God's own heart, that Samuel had anointed king, when he died, it seemed as though death had won. When the prophets, both major and the minor, when they breathed their last breath and their heartbeat for the last time, it seemed as though death had won. 
And when the last of the prophets, John the Baptist, was imprisoned and beheaded, it seemed once again as though death had won. And as Jesus was arrested, it seemed as though death once again had gained advantage. As they flogged him, it seems as though death was winning. When they nailed his hands and his feet to the cross, it seemed as though death was taking the lead. And as he hung there on the cross, it seemed as though death would surely win again. And at three o'clock on Friday afternoon, when Jesus breathed his last, just as it always had been, and perhaps always would be, death had won again. And as death threw a party, Friday night and Saturday, on Sunday, as the song says, his buried body began to breathe. And he was raised. The body that had died came back to life, holding on to the keys of death and the grave. Death has not won. It will be destroyed. And until then, we trust our past to the grace of God, our present to the love of God, and our promises to the future of God. Jesus said, in the resurrection and life, he that believes on me, though they die, yet shall they live. I've got good news for you. Ain't no grave gonna hold your body down. I said, ain't no grave gonna hold your body down. So live with faith and hope. Father, speak the peace and the hope that we need to hear and receive. For we know who holds the future and we know his heart and his heart is good. Father, encourage us with your words today as only you can. That death has been defeated, it will be destroyed and all of its victories overturned. We celebrate it because of Jesus and his resurrection. In Jesus' name, and everybody said,